My name is Sergey Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. All right, so next week we are going to start a new sermon series that we're calling Together. And this is a, a series of five sermons based on different New Testament passages that will help us understand what a healthy church community is like. All right, so we're starting this new sermon series called Together, and, and our, our goal is to try to learn from the New Testament what it is to have a healthy church community. So we'll have uh, different topics within that, and uh, all of that will culminate in um, a final sermon on Sunday, August 14th, that will hopefully renew our purpose of making disciples and connect that to our community. That Sunday, August 14th, will also be a day of prayer and fasting. So I'm giving you a heads up. I'd love for you to put it on your calendar. There'll be more details coming your way, but please set that day aside for prayer and fasting as we humbly seek the Lord's leading as we go into our fall ministries and really want the gospel to be central in our hearts and in our ministry as well. All right, so today we conclude our series on the Beatitudes. Hashtag blessed. We are looking at the last beatitude today. Now, throughout the series, Pastor Josh and I try to emphasize the conflict and the contrast between what we often think it means to be blessed, especially as you see it on social media under that hashtag, and what Jesus says it means to have God's favor in your life. The Beatitudes teaches that we can know, we can tell, that we are blessed, that we have God's favor, by the presence of certain internal spiritual qualities, like humility, sadness over sin, meekness, desire for righteousness, desire for mercy, desire for peace, purity of heart. These traits, they're internal, they're character traits, something in your spirit and in your heart. These traits are signs that we are accepted with God, that we are part of His kingdom that we have His favor, that we are in a relationship with Him. They're not virtues that we can cultivate ourselves, but they're effects of God's grace breaking into our lives. The last beatitude is different. The seven previous ones were about these internal qualities, something that is coming from within the Christian. The last one has to do with something that is happening to the Christian, something done to us. So please follow me as I read Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. 5, 10 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can find this passage on page 810 in the Black Pew Bible. Page 810. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. This is God's word. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus is defining our blessed state, our experience of God's favor, by our experience of persecution and rejection for his sake. This is an important topic, so let's work through it under three headings. We'll first look at the reality of persecution. Secondly, we'll look at the reason 
for persecution. And finally, we will consider our response to persecution. So the reality of it, the reason for it, and the response to it. Let me give you two other passages from the New Testament that help us come to grips with the universal reality of persecution. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. This is Apostle Paul. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says when persecution happens, when a trial comes into your life, when you come against someone who is rejecting you because of Jesus, he's saying, don't be surprised. That's normal. That is expected in the life of a Christian. Persecution, to whatever degree that happens, and there are degrees, but to whatever degree persecution happens is a universal reality for Christians. It is something we are to expect. Now, look at Scripture. Scripture gives us a record of all these different believers from different cultures at different times, with different gifts, with different life experiences, with different family situations and jobs. And all of them, all of the faithful believers have experienced persecution. Abel was murdered by Cain. Joseph was slandered by Potiphar's wife. Elijah was given a nickname. I don't know if you remember Elijah's nickname. King called him the troubler of Israel. The troubler of Israel. This is how he was known in his time. The troubler of Israel. We have David, of course, running from Saul for many years, in fact, being a fugitive, being chased by Saul and his army. Jeremiah was imprisoned in an old cistern. Remember that story? Almost died. Daniel was given to the lions, and his three friends were thrown into a fiery furnace. John the Baptist was beheaded. These are the highlights from Scripture. There are many more. Every faithful believer in Scripture has experienced, to a certain degree, persecution, rejection, and hardship. Now, of course, once you get into the New Testament, there's this figure of Jesus looming large, the perfect sinless human being who has done nothing wrong, having perfectly fulfilled the law of God, having lived a life that is exactly godly, exactly good, having done everything right, yet throughout his life, not just at the end, but throughout his life, Jesus consistently experienced persecution. Jesus is born Herod is trying to kill him, murders a lot of other kids just to try to get to Jesus. Jesus escapes. His family takes him to Egypt. He's a refugee for a time. He returns, and then finally when he enters into ministry, he is persecuted wherever he goes, rejected. Even in his own, his own hometown, he is not accepted, and his message is not welcome. And finally, of course, he is arrested, falsely accused, slandered, and executed. The Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders could not agree on anything. 
One thing they agreed on is, is the persecution of Jesus in his execution. Our Lord said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will also persecute, persecute you. This is John 15:20. And of course, the early followers of Christ were constantly harassed by religious and civil authorities. Some were put in prison, some put to death, and some forced to flee and leave their homes and property behind. Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 38 Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. When you hear this description, it's easy to take it metaphorically. It is literal. All these things happened to the early Christians, including uh, going about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Uh, The Romans used to wrap people in animal skins and put them into the Colosseum to be devoured by lions. This was a normal custom of punishing Christians. The Bible not only promises persecution for believers, it testifies that it has been God's people's experience throughout the biblical narrative. This is normal for God's people. Persecution was also a constant reality in the history of the church as well. So not just in the biblical times, but past that, as long as the church has been around, Christians have been persecuted. It's telling that 11 out of the 12 apostles died violent deaths, and the one who escaped a violent death died in exile. That's John. Several waves of localized and empire-wide persecutions affected the church in the first few centuries under the Roman rule. Once the Romans figured out that Christians were a threat to their worldview, to their values, to their policy of oppression and aggression, Christians were persecuted. Many of the vivid accounts of Christian martyrs came from that time. Many of you know the story of Polycarp, this old bishop of Smyrna. He was arrested and uh, was threatened with being burned alive, which was again another thing they did to Christians in those times. And he was pressed to deny Christ to, to avoid this kind of death. Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp was, in fact, burned alive. Many of the early reformers, like Jan Hus, Tyndale, I think I just pronounced it in a Czech, Czech manner, John Hus would be the English translation of that, William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, Others were persecuted and some burned at the stake. We can think of many particular groups of Christians persecuted throughout the centuries. Of course, the Huguenots in France, the Puritans in England, the Covenanters in Scotland, the Baptists in the Soviet Union. There were many groups that were persecuted throughout their histories. I went to a Bible college in Ukraine and 
It's one of the first Bible colleges that opened up in Ukraine after the Soviet regime fell. And so most of the students in my class, not me, but most of the other students were coming from Baptist families that were persecuted under the Soviet regime. Many of them uh, had stories of their dads and moms going to prison for a time, and that was something normal for them. That's something they grew up with. Now, many missionaries in the recent centuries lost their lives for the spread of the gospel in various parts of the world. Now, some of us think, well, that was earlier. That was before Bible times and then the early church history and even the Reformation. Those were not the enlightened times that we live in. Well, today, Christians are still widely persecuted. In November of 2012, German Chancellor Angela Merkel was criticized by other European leaders, perhaps the more enlightened leaders of Europe, for her statement that Christians today... This is 2012. Christians today are the most persecuted religion worldwide. This is what Angela Merkel said. I think she is correct. In many countries today, it is illegal to identify with Christ or talk to anyone about him. Pastor Dave Greiner and Pastor Emerson Barron go to this one particular area in India and Nepal, and uh, they try to encourage pastors there. In fact, I think they're going on another trip in August. And uh, they tell stories, and pastors from there tell stories. One of them visited with us, I think, last summer, and was telling stories about just how dangerous it is. And it really is. For many Christians in the world today, verbal identification with Christ, saying that I am, in fact, a Christian, means imprisonment and sometimes even death. In certain parts of Africa today, churches are frequently set on fire and Christians are murdered. That is the reality that many of God's people live with today. Just this past week, President Putin of Russia, uh, this was literally a few days ago, he approved a package of laws under the anti-terrorism mandate that prohibit This package prohibits sharing one's faith in homes, online, or anywhere outside of the recognized by the government church buildings. This is happening right now. They just signed this law. It's going to be starting to get enforced at the end of this month. And so if you're a believer in Russia today and you want to invite somebody over and have a Bible study at your home, you can't legally do that. If you want to send an email to someone with the gospel, talking about Jesus, you cannot actually legally do that anymore. Now, even in Western democracies, where some of the Christian values are still reflected in their worldviews, Christians are experiencing pressure, if not persecution, which is ironically based in the new tolerance legislation. It's happening. It's, it's happening here, too. Uh, it's happening worse in Canada, but it certainly is already starting to happen here as well. Now, I've spent some time with many examples on showing from the Bible, from history, from current experience, that persecution is a constant reality for Christians. The fact that most Christians in America do not experience persecution certainly not to the degree that it's happening in other parts of the world, is an anomaly. It's unusual. 
the normal experience of Christians is being persecuted, is being rejected, is being pressured. And so perhaps, some people are making this connection, perhaps the lack of persecution here corresponds to the spiritual state of the Western church. Maybe. Now, let's look at the reason for persecution. If it is the reality, what is the reason? Why is that that Christians everywhere and at all times seem to be persecuted? Let's look at our text for that reason. Jesus says that his followers are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and they are persecuted on his account. For righteousness' sake and on his account. That's the reason. We are persecuted because we are pursuing righteousness and because we are doing things for the sake of Jesus. It's really the same thing. Christians are persecuted because they are like Jesus, because they live like him, because they practice, proclaim, and promote his message. And if we do that, no matter what society we live in, no matter what time or what country, including this country, including this time, if we do that, if we live like Jesus, we will be persecuted. The degree of persecution may and will vary. Even in our text, we see different degrees. To persecute in our text means to systematically harass and oppress. So some Christians experience that. Government-sanctioned, government-run systematic persecution. Jesus says that we may be reviled, which means to be insulted for Christ's sake. And then there's slander, people saying false things about us on account of Christ. Whatever the degree is, Jesus says, those who resemble him will not be accepted in this world. Now look at John 15, verses 18 through 20. John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says, If the world hates you, that's persecution, right? Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, please get this connection. Jesus says, no one who is like Jesus will not be persecuted. If you are like Jesus, you will not be at home in this world. The more you are like Jesus, the less you feel at home in this world. And the more opposition and rejection you will experience. So when we talk about the lack of persecution here, and of course there are many reasons, I am in no way trying to simplify this issue. But one of the reasons must be that we are not quite as much like Jesus as we should be. Perhaps it's too easy for us because we don't stand out as much. Now think about the rest of the Beatitudes that we've already worked through. Think about these traits that that Christians must exhibit, that if you're a Christian, that is your character, that is your outlook, this is what you are like. All of them are in opposition to the values promoted and accepted in the world, in any part of the world. There are different ideologies, of course, there are different cultures. Some cultures have laws that control some of these worldly desires, and yet any culture will be in opposition to these qualities. 
Christians, according to Jesus, are poor in spirit, meaning they're humble, dependent on God. But the world embraces pride and self-reliance. That's just how it is. If you're outside of Christ, there is no value in being humble. There's no value in being empty or poor in spirit or dependent on someone else. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency is what's promoted. Christians mourn over sin. The world tries to avoid feelings of guilt or sorrow. Christians are meek, but the world sees meekness as a deficiency, as, as weakness, in fact. Christians pursue righteousness, but the world says right and wrong are relative terms. Christians are merciful, but the world is condemning. Christians are pure in heart, and the world says whatever works for you is fine. Christians seek peace while the world is okay with segregation and separation and acceptable forms of oppression. Now, do you see how every beatitude is fundamentally countercultural? And if we live out this kind of life, the life of, of poverty of spirit and purity of heart, the life in pursuit of peace, in pursuit of mercy, in pursuit of righteousness, if we live out the life of meekness, when we don't defend ourselves, but we are willing to, to, to sacrifice, willing to accept injury for someone else's sake, if we live like that, we, of course, are going to stand out. We're going to be very different from anything else that is promoted in our own culture. Now, I love this description of Christians from um, a, a letter. This is probably 2nd century A.D., so very early on in the Christian history. And this is how someone describes what Christians were like. I wonder how that matches up with the description that somebody would make of us as Christians in 21st century. This is how this person describes believers. He says, For Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own, or speak some strange dialect, or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men. Nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs and clothing, food and the other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land is as foreign country. They marry and have children like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. 
They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. Now, why are Christians rejected, reviled, slandered, and persecuted? Because we are so different from the world that the world cannot accept us. They may not know the reason why they don't like us, but there is an implicit hostility towards the Christians. Now, I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that you don't belong in this world, that that you are in a culture, in an environment, in a world, in a worldview that is opposite from what Christ teaches, that your life doesn't fit in the expected norms of our society. I wonder if you believe that, and if you believe that to the extent that you live that out. Or do you think that conflict between the world and the Christian can be avoided? I've seen two common approaches to Christians trying to avoid this conflict, this tension between them and the world. I'm going to try to to cover both groups fairly. Okay, I obviously belong to one of them, and I'll confess my sin in that. But some of you belong to the other as well. One common approach to avoid this conflict with the world is, is when some believers try to conform the world to themselves. They try to conform the world to themselves. Now, I don't mean that they change the world through evangelism and social reform. That's different. I mean those believers who think that the government must support Christian values and causes, or at least protect them. May I humbly give you two reasons why this does not work. The first reason is that unconverted people in authority simply cannot understand or accept Christian views. They're unable to do that. Their old natures prevent them from seeing value in what we consider to be valuable. They may do so if it coincides with their own worldly views. But they can go no further than that. In other words, a government can support certain Christian organizations and and pass laws that benefit Christians, but they only do that as long as it benefits their other goals. If it coincides, great. And there are stretches in history where, where it coincided. And so Christians prospered during that time materially because they had now, they had legal protections, they had they had benefits from the government. But it wasn't because the government, the unconverted people in the government, really thought it was a good idea to promote distinctly gospel values. No, they just thought it was good for what was happening, for what they were doing. And sometimes it is good. Other times they realize it's not. And so those laws go away and new laws get passed. While certain people in in governments may affirm such godly ideas as tolerance and human rights, those, those are good things. They will not do it at the expense of other ungodly ideas, for example, an idea of self-defined morality. When those clash, the ungodly idea is going to win out. 
Now we see that unfolding in our own culture today. So that's one reason why trying to conform the world, conform the culture you're in to your own views doesn't work, is because the unconverted people in authority cannot agree with you. The second reason is that legislating Christian values have never worked well for Christians. So, so let me speak as, as somebody who likes history. A significant number of Christians experienced persecution at the hands of so-called Christian governments. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous number of Christians who died because they were put to death by the self-identified Christian governments. Think of the history of the Reformation. We think of the history of the Puritans in England. There's all these things. Those were all groups that were trying to function within the Christian, so-called Christian society and Christian government. My favorite example of this is the story of Roger Williams. I don't know how many of you know who Roger Williams is, but if you've been to Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island, if you haven't missed it on the way somewhere else, if you stayed there, uh, you would know that Roger Williams is one of the founders of that state. But do you know how he founded it? He did that because he was kicked out of Massachusetts. He didn't want to leave Massachusetts. He's one of the leaders there. But when his religious views came in conflict with the religious views of the Puritan government, the Puritan government of Massachusetts, this is very early on. This is still when the Puritans thought that they could build the society as a shining city on the hill. Still the same people who came with that vision. And yet, when they disagreed over baptism, where they disagreed over which laws should civil government enforce, for example, should the civil government enforce Sabbath laws, for example, when they disagreed on that, he was excommunicated and kicked out of the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so he started another state, another colony. Now, you know how much I like the Puritans, right? But they have not done well when they were given political power. Throughout their movement, they sought political power, but when they were given it, when they finally got it, things did not go very well. Though they were Christians, though they, I think they had commendable goals, it inevitably led to the persecution of other believers. You see, when you try to legislate those things, when you try to say the government will do what the church is supposed to do, it doesn't work well for Christians. Historically, this is a pl pretty clear case to make. When the followers of Christ were first called Christians, remember in the book of Acts, it was a derogatory term. It wasn't a compliment. It, was, it wasn't a good thing to be called a Christian. This was a bad thing. They were mocked for acting like little Christ. They so resembled Jesus that people started calling him Christians. And so now, for those of us, those believers today, who think that the Christian title is a designation of honor and respect that carries with it certain weight politically, that, uh, that deserves rights and privileges, we need to look at our history. And we need to wonder if this is a good thing to, to promote. To be a Christian throughout the history of the church is to be persecuted. To be a Christian is not to demand that our rights and privileges be given to us. So please, and I say this humbly, beware of equating Christianity with patriotism, morality, and obedience to laws.
The world will not accept us or love us. It cannot do that. Just as it doesn't accept and love Jesus. That's one approach, trying to conform the world to ourselves. The other approach is, is to approach to relieve the tension between the world and the Christian is to conform ourselves to the world. So either the world is going to give or we're going to give for us to come together. So the first approach is more typical of older generations. The second is found mostly among the younger believers, and I am in that number, so I am talking to you millennials. The approach here is to be so nice, so loving, so compassionate, as to erase all the reasons for which the world hates Christians. I'll give you an example from my own life. When Jillian and I and the girls moved to Chicago to pastor a church in the community of Roscoe Village, which is an affluent neighborhood in the city that is uh, indifferent, if not hostile, to the gospel. In fact, we, I used to say that people move to Roscoe Village to avoid the culture that they grew up with in Iowa, in Indiana, and maybe Missouri. People move there so they don't have to go to church, so their children are not raised in the church. That's the kind of neighborhood we lived in. And so when we got there, I knew that the church had a bad reputation, and I knew that at least in part the reputation was based on bad behavior by Christians. So my goal was, and I naively thought, that if we just behave better, right, if we're just nicer to our neighbors, if we're not as isolated, if we're not as judgmental, if, if we're not as narrow-minded, and if we can just connect with them and warmly invite them to hear the gospel and open our lives before them and be good neighbors and take care of our property so, so that everybody likes us to be there. If we only did that, I thought, surely people would respond positively. Well, that naive expectation was shattered pretty quickly. Turns out, it's not only that people don't like the church for whatever reason. They also just don't like Jesus. They also just don't like Christianity. They just don't think it's a good idea to have Christians in their midst. They don't like that the church is on the corner of their neighborhood. And so no matter how warm we were, no matter how compassionate, how nice, how good neighborly we were, it did not change people's perspective towards Jesus. And Jillian and I experienced a fair amount of rejection from our neighbors, people that we try to love, people that we try to serve. Now that happens not because we were bad, right? Not because we just weren't good Christians, but because Jesus was rejected, because they didn't like Jesus, and we were his people. And so by association, we were always going to be rejected with certain people in our community. Now, for some of us, the, the optimistic millennials that we are, we think that, yeah, let's just get over this, this stigma of the conservative Christianity, the, the intolerant bigotry that, that we often get lumped in with, and let's just be better, let's, let's do better, let's be more compassionate, let's get involved in all sorts of causes. And that's a good thing. This is a good impulse. The problem is that if we expect that the world will turn towards us because of that, we are just naive. Any Christian who lives out the Christian life will experience some degree of persecution and rejection. The application here for us is that we need to both abandon trying to conform the world to Christianity and we need to stop trying to conform Christianity to the world. Rather, rather, we must conform to Christ 
and accept the rejection and the persecution that inevitably comes with it to whatever degree the Lord allows it to happen in our own particular lives. It's not the world conforming to us, nor is it us conforming to the world. It's us conforming to Christ. That's the solution. As we do that, come what may. The world that doesn't like Jesus doesn't like us either. But the Lord will find His people in the world and bring them to us and conform them to the image of Christ as well. Now, as you consider what that means for you, let's say you're tracking with me and you say, okay, so if I want to live a godly life, I need to expect that there will be some degree of rejection and persecution, some degree of slander, something is going to happen that will, that will reveal the tension between me and the world. And you're saying, okay, I'm ready. So what does it look like? How would I, how would I ever be able to say I am being persecuted? So let me give you a word of warning here, and then I'll give you a couple examples where it actually happens. The warning comes from 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. Because Peter also dealt with people like we deal with people. He understands human nature. And so Peter says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter is saying, not everybody who says they're suffering, they're being persecuted, are being persecuted for Christ's sake. He's saying some of you are just bad people who are getting what they deserve. And so some of you are murderers, and yes, you're going you're gonna to be arrested. The government is going to crack down on murder and, and thievery and evil doing, all those things. But I love that he puts meddling on that list, don't you? You have these big things like murder and and theft, right? And then there's meddling. He's saying, if you suffer as a meddler, please don't say you're suffering as a Christian. Right? You can suffer as a Christian, but you can also suffer as a meddler. And when you're suffering as a meddler, don't say, I'm being persecuted for Christ's sake. So for example, if your neighbors are mad at you because of your obnoxious and inconsiderate talk about Jesus all the time, It may be that they're mad at you because of Jesus. It can also be that they're just mad at you because you're meddling. Because you're being obnoxious. Because you're not loving towards them. If you're being fired from your job because you're reading your Bible incessantly, and you're not actually doing any work, please don't say I'm being persecuted for my Christian beliefs. This is common sense decision for your employer. You're not working, so you're not going to get paid. So let's make sure we don't tint those normal, sinful circumstances of life with persecution and claim that we are being persecuted for Christ's sake when really we're just being sinners and we're doing silly, sinful things. But there are circumstances when your neighbor will reject you because you are talking about Jesus. Not because you're unloving, but because they don't like Jesus. When you invite them to church, maybe next time you talk to them, they won't talk to you. Maybe at your job, you are asked to do something that is not righteous. And as a follower of Christ, you say, I can't do that. I want to live faithfully. I want to glorify God with, with the opportunities He's given to me, and this, is, this will be sin for me. And maybe you lose out on a promotion. Maybe you, you are fired altogether. And that may be because of Christ. It may be on His account and for righteousness' sake. So let's acknowledge that. 
Maybe you are in a relationship with someone, whether it's friendship or a romantic relationship, where when you stand up for the truth and when you talk about the gospel, when you talk about the norms of Christian life, that relationship is now broken. Is it persecution? We probably won't use that word. But it is rejection on account of righteousness for the sake of Christ. That kind of stuff happens, you see. That's normal. If you're in the academic world and you claim to you you hold to certain things that are christian things and universities don't hire you and your papers don't get published and you don't get promoted and you don't get the posts you want because you believe in the supernatural for example even though you may be a good historian you may be a good academic but if you believe in something that nobody else believes in because they're not believers and you don't get promoted yeah, I think that is part of persecution for Christ's sake. Now, all these things seem relatively small things based on the examples we've used from around the world and throughout time. And yet, that is the degree that the Lord is allowing in our lives and in our culture. So, as we think about it, we need to know that persecution is real to whatever degree. We need to know the reason for it, which is because we don't fit in this world. And finally, we need to realize what our response should be. How should we respond to the degree of persecution that is happening in your life? Well, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Rejoice and be glad as Jesus' response to persecution. Instead of getting defensive, instead of getting disillusioned, instead of getting discouraged about the state of our culture, we should rejoice and be glad. Why? Three reasons, really quickly. First, we rejoice because persecution and rejection and slander, if it's done for the the sake of Christ, shows that we belong to Christ. As he was rejected, so are we. J.C. Ryle says, Persecution is like the goldsmith's hallmark on real silver and gold. It is one of the marks of a converted man. So if somebody is being persecuted, it could confirm that they are, in fact, a Christian because Christ was persecuted. If there is tension and struggle and rejection and persecution in the life of a believer, Sometimes it just simply shows that they do belong in the world without Christ, that they belong to God's kingdom, that this is not their home, so they're not going to fit. I remember as a kid, and I don't know what it's like in Ukraine, I don't know what it's like in, or, I'm sorry, in America, in, in this generation especially, but my mom and my grandma, they kept all the, the family jewelry, and it was in a particular place in the house, and there was silverware and cutlery and there were bracelets and rings and those kind of things. And people wouldn't typically wear them or use them, but you would keep them in a, in a safe place. And as a kid, I remember I used to look through it. And, and somebody told me that if you look at a, at a gold bracelet, you need to find a stamp. There's a stamp that tells you just how pure that gold is. Or if you're looking at earrings that are silver earrings, there's got to be a mark there that defines what kind of metal it is and it is real. Well, Ryle is saying persecution is like that. When you're being rejected in this world or you're being persecuted, you look at your life and you say, oh, there must be something different about me. There must be some kind of purity of me. There must be some kind of new nature in me that makes this world reject me and not accept me. 
Now, please listen carefully to me. If you feel at home in this world, if you feel there's no tension between you and others around you, maybe it is because it is your home, because you do not belong in God's kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, you know you're in the kingdom when you don't belong here. You know who you are. You know that you are a Christian when you are being rejected and slandered and persecuted. So if you do feel rejected by this world, it's a cause for great rejoicing because it means that you really are part of God's kingdom. So next time you are rejected for Christ's sake because you are pursuing righteousness, pause for a second and say, this is good, this is a mark of my identity with Christ. I must really be a Christian if this is happening to me. Now secondly, persecution shows that God is working in us and through us in this world. So first, it just shows that we belong to Christ. Secondly, it shows that God is working in us and through us in this world. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, This persecution which he is receiving for, for Christ's sake is proof that the Christian, proof to the Christian of who he is and what he is. And we already talked about the who. Now this is the what. So if you find you are being persecuted and maligned falsely for Christ's sake, you know you are like the prophets who were God's chosen servants and who are now with God rejoicing in glory. In other words, if you are persecuted, you place yourself in the long line of God's servants. And you're saying, if this is hard, maybe I'm doing something right. If this is difficult and I'm experiencing this rejection and slander and persecution, maybe it's because God is using me. And whenever God's kingdom expands and moves forward, there's opposition and rejection. Thirdly and lastly, persecution points to another world where we will receive a great reward. So firstly, we rejoice because we know we're with Christ. Secondly, we rejoice because we know God is working in us and through us. But thirdly, we rejoice because we think about another world where we will receive a great reward. Jesus promises that there is a reward waiting for us if we are persecuted here. What is this reward? Well, there's a lot of opinions on what these rewards that are promised in Scripture are. I, frankly, haven't quite figured it out. I do know that more broadly, at least, more broadly, it may mean other things, but it certainly means this, that something indescribable, something so glorious connected with the presence of God is promised to us. It's our experience of God apart from sin. At some point, sin is not going to interfere at all with our relationship with God. And that is a great reward. That we'll be with God without any influence of sin. That we'll be able to know Him the way He is. It's, it's an unimaginable joy. It's an inexpressible kind of glory. And what's happening here is God is preparing us for that. So the reward is that though we are suffering persecution and rejection, all of that is building towards an experience of God that's going to overshadow any temporary loss. Whatever we lose temporarily, we gain eternally. 
You see, whatever we experience here that's hard leads to eternal victories that will not be taken away from us. There's a story about a man who lost everything in the Great Depression of the 1920s, lost his money, his home, even his wife left him because of that. And he was a Christian and he was trying to process just why God is allowing this hardship, this suffering in his life. So one day, he stopped to watch some men doing stonework on a huge cathedral in the city. One worker was chiseling a triangular piece of stone. And so this man was interested, he's curious, and, and he asked what he's going to do with that stone, that he's so carefully chiseling into one particular shape. The workman pointed to a little opening, a little neat opening at the top of right under the the spire of the cathedral. So he could look and see there's a little opening right at the very top. And he said, see that little opening up there? I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit up there. He's chiseling the stone to the perfect shape so it would fit right up high in the cathedral. Now the man took it as God's answer. He realized that God was shaping him for the world he really belonged in. Now we live, even in the midst of rejection and persecution and all sorts of other trials, we live confidently anticipating the great eternal reward of inexpressible joy and unimaginable glory. That's our hope. Whatever is happening to us here just cannot compare to what God is yet to give us. Uh, Leslie... Uh, Leland Fields as a writer, and she she uh, she wrote some funny stuff in Christianity Today that some people thought was maybe a little over the line, and people that maybe struggled to understand satire did not take kindly to her words. And so she wrote a response. She's a writer, so she wrote a response, and it's called "Why Can't We Christians Laugh Anymore?" And she writes, "We're living in a comedy, friends." not a tragedy that ends with a massive, jubilant wedding between Christ and his bride, the church. Someday we're going to sit down to a giddy feast with our sisters and brothers. We're going to sing songs and tell stories and jokes, likely even with a little hyperbole and satire. But I'm not waiting until then, she says. I am rejoicing now. She's saying, it's okay to laugh now, it's okay to joke now, it's okay to be satirical now and use hyperbole. Why? Because that's what we're going to be doing then. We can't imagine the joy we're going to have. We can't imagine what it would be like to sit at a feast with our brothers and sisters. We'd be so giddy with joy, we, we can't comprehend it now. But, she's saying, you don't have to wait to be happy until then. You can rejoice now because it's coming. Because we're already headed that way. Because God is already doing these things in your life even now. So it's okay to laugh now. Even in the midst of persecution. Even in the midst of rejection when we say, yes, this is difficult. But I understand why this is happening. And I understand that this is not the world I belong in. There's another world for which God is shaping me. We must rejoice now. Because we belong to Christ. Why would we not rejoice knowing that we belong to Christ as exposed in a time of persecution. Our Savior was rejected and persecuted and abandoned, 
finally put to death with great shame, great physical and spiritual and emotional agony. Jesus did that to bring us into his kingdom. Friends, where instead of shame, we get glory. Instead of punishment, we get forgiveness. Instead of rejection, we get adoption as God's children. Instead of despair, we get confidence and joy. We don't have to wait to rejoice until it's fulfilled completely. It's already being fulfilled in our lives now. We can begin rejoicing now. We can rejoice that God is working in us and through us even as we are getting pressure and rejection and persecution. We are His chosen servants like the prophets of old to proclaim His gospel of hope to the world that we don't belong in and the world that does not accept us. That is what we do at the table every week. When we come to the Lord's table, we come to experience the persecuted Savior, to acknowledge and strengthen our relationship with Him, to resolve to suffer for His sake, whatever that may mean to you or to me. As we come to the the table of the Lord, there's an acceptance that He suffered and so we must suffer. His body is broken, so my body may be broken too. His blood is spilled, so my blood may be spilled too. To whatever degree the Lord allows it in your life. But there's a resolve to follow in His footsteps. And saying, if Jesus did that, to my great benefit, I too can do that to the great benefit of others. Even towards those who don't accept me in the world where I don't belong. So I encourage you, if you're a believer, if this, is, this world is not your home, If you are being rejected, and if you are being slandered, and if you are taking it meekly, with a purity of heart, seeking after righteousness, hungering after righteousness, seeking peace and mercy in your life and the life of others, you come to this table and you get renewed in that commitment. You get nourished at this table. Your faith gets nourished through the work of God by grace. If you're a believer, you are welcome at this table. You don't have to be part of our church. You just have to be part of Christ. If you're not part of Christ, if you're not his follower, and this, in fact, is your home, and you feel totally comfortable in this world, don't come to the table. This is not for you. This is for God's family. But I do want to ask you if you want to become part of our family. And you are welcome to come by grace because Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be adopted into God's family. And by faith you accept that he died and rose for you. And that changed who you are. And that gave you a new family, a new nature, a new identity with Christ, and a new purpose in life. If you come to Him by faith, embracing what Jesus has done for you, embracing Him as your Savior, you are absolutely welcome in our church, at this table. We are your family. Father, I just pray that you would bless us now as we come and meet with you Now, I pray that you would help us understand anew and afresh what Jesus went through to bring acceptance to us with you, to usher us into a new kingdom, to promise us a new inheritance, to promise to us inexpressible joy and unimaginable glory. Father, I thank you that you are sustainer in all these difficulties that we face. That you are with us by your Holy Spirit 
as we are rejected, as we are not welcome, as we are slandered. And so I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would give us the right response, the response of joy, the response of meekness, the response of hope and anticipation of your reward. Lord, I pray that you would, that you would make our resolve even firmer to suffer for you, to serve you well as we come to this table. We remember what Jesus has done for us. We pray that our lives would reflect that. We confess that often we do seek comfort. We do seek lack of conflict with the world through various means. We pray that you would break us out of that mindset. We also pray for your spirit to continue to work in us, to chisel us, to make us more suitable for your kingdom and for your work even here. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I invite you to come forward if you're a believer. Take communion here. You can take it right here, or you can take it back to your seats to meditate as we sing. If you're out in the balconies, there are tables set up for you there, and so you can go forward where you are and take communion there. May the Lord bless this time of reflection and confession and meditation and strengthen our faith together.